0: back to midwretched friends welcome back we hope you're doing well out there we're glad that you're here i hope you're staying warm in the
1: stupid cold cold terrible weather it is beautiful
0: and we hope you had a good thanksgiving yeah we really do we hope that you ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate ate to your heart's content Mm -hmm. and that you were grateful for whatever it was that you need to be grateful for in your life and that you had time with whoever you wanted to have time with, whether that's nobody or a whole bunch of people.
1: I wanted to have time with nobody, but I was disallowed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're married now, my friend. Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, I'm Tommy. I'm Mick. And we are here today to uh, hear a story from you. And I don't know anything you you told me the names but I refrained from any googling so I am a fresh audience today I appreciate it welcome to midwretched everyone yeah today we are going to
1: be talking about the uh, kidnapping and the survival of Mary and Beth Stauffer Hmm. so like I said last time we have not done a survivor story in quite a bit so I wanted to find us a survivor
0: story I like a survivor story
1: That said, unfortunately, not everyone in the story survives, and we'll talk about those people along the way. Mm. And this has some very Tommy specific triggers. Oh, goody. (laughs) Like very specific things that I'm like, oh, yeah, this is one of her fears.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool. Tell me why I'll be like curled up in bed tomorrow, wondering what I've done with my life. I do this
1: to you every time, though. I just like I like to ensure that you never sleep on Sundays. True.
0: Good thing I have the whole week off for Thanksgiving. Oh, you
1: little fucker. See, this is like the vengeance that I'm taking on all of my teacher friends that get a week off.
0: Yeah, I mean, my preschooler still has to be at school. I still have to get her out of the house by 645, but I can come back and go to bed.
1: Mm, you
0: because her school's not off for the whole week you little fucker
1: this is my busy time of year so I'm like incredibly resentful for everybody else that gets to take time off
0: if it gives you any consolation my poor husband who works a day job in education and a night job in retail will be at his day job every day this week and then his night job every night this week oh, will have Thanksgiving off and then be working all of Black Friday oh poor baby yeah I'm working Black Friday all the fucking day Mm, in retail
1: not in retail thank god i haven't done that in a hot minute actually i've never worked retail but mm.
0: yeah so he's in he's in solidarity with you on the like crazy heavy oh my god what is going on here week
1: yeah yeah it's just it sucks when everybody else gets time off and you're the one that's just like in the fucking trenches
0: i know he has to he's downstairs working right now administering some tests to some chinese students (laughs) oh no yeah that sounds terrible
1: Mm-hmm. uh all
0: right chitter chatter aside let's
1: dive into our story uh today we're gonna open up on may 16th 1980 in roseville minnesota a quiet little suburb just outside of st paul minnesota where mary Stoffer, a 36 year old mother leaves a hair salon with her eight-year-old daughter beth i see your face already <laughs>
0: Cool. Go on.
1: Mary had had a really busy morning. Family was actually preparing for a four-year-long mission trip to the Philippines. Mary's husband, Irv, was a Baptist minister, and the two had actually spent a lot of years working together in the Philippines, teaching and preaching. They had actually married in 1965. Mary was working as a math teacher at the local high school. They had completed their first mission trip after the, shortly after they had got married in 1967. After that, they returned worked in Nebraska for a little bit. They had two kids, Beth and Steve. They bumped around the kind of the Midwest for a little bit before they had another chance to return for yet another mission trip to the Philippines. They love doing this shit, guys. Mm. Like, they would have spent their entire lives there if they could have. And in fact, 1980 was actually just a year-long furlough. They weren't even home long enough in Minnesota to have permanent housing. Minnesota was where Mary and Irving were originally from and where they had gone to college. So the family of four were now living in the town of Arden Hills in the ministry housing at Bethel College where Irving had done his seminary work. So they were basically working in the church housing or living in the church housing in between mission trips.
0: That's funny. Yeah. Because my husband went to a Bethel also. And so when you're, like, Googling his Bethel, often you'll get the Minnesota Bethel.
1: I think the Minnesota one is the big one, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. the main kind of one that people go to. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, like I said, he was a minister. She was a former math teacher, now full-time mom. And they were getting ready to return to the Philippines, like I said, in just a few days. The house was already packed up. And Mary had dedicated that morning and, well, that afternoon... Mary had dedicated the entire day to just getting the kids ready to leave for the Philippines. That morning, she had taken their six-year-old son, Steve, to get a haircut right before dropping him off for afternoon kindergarten. And then while she dropped him off, she picked up eight-year-old Beth to go get her haircut at the salon. Beth had been very excited to get her big girl haircut and happily took all the compliments that she received from the ladies at Carmen's Beauty Salon Aww. as she trotted out. Mary and Beth walked, to, uh, walked through the parking lot out of the salon to their 1973 Ford LTD, one of those big old boat cars, mm. to return home for dinner. By this time, it was about 4 or 5 o'clock. And right then, um, as they were walking to the car, a man in his 30s with thick glasses approached them. Mary smiled at the man, immediately assuming that he has he was lost or needed directions or something. So I like to imagine she just gave him that Midwest smile of like... Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. the polite, <laughs>
1: like tight-lipped, like, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, please tell me you don't need anything. Yeah, please don't have, talk a busy to me, but I don't have me. the
0: heart to not acknowledge you. <laughs> yeah. Yes,
1: yes. So Mary smiles at him and continues walking toward the car. But quickly she sees the man lift up part of his shirt, revealing a gun in his waistband. He takes the gun out and discreetly points it at Beth, saying, I need a ride. He forces Mary and Beth into their Ford LTD with Mary at the driver's seat and commands her to drive north. Mary tries to remain calm and tell Beth that everything's all right. She tells the man... We're Christians. Whatever trouble you're in, God will help you. We will help you. Please don't hurt us. We'll help you get whatever you need. But the man ignores what she says, continues to hold the gun directed at her while she's driving. At one point, a police officer pulls up behind them. The man is holding the gun discreetly so that the police officer and no one else driving would be able to see it. The man tells Mary quietly, to turn and warns her if that police car turns in the same directions as we do i will kill this little girl wow luckily the cop did not follow them around the turn the man continues to direct them to a wooded area in nearby anoka county it's about a 20 to 30 minute drive they're kind of going all around this suburban area they eventually drive into a wooded area where he directs her to stop the car and pulls the two out. He binds their hands and covers their mouths in medical tape and forces them into the trunk. He then gets into the driver's seat and drives back toward Roseville, toward an undeveloped area where he had left his own car. Mm. He forces them to switch cars, get into the trunk of his car. This whole time, Beth is panicking, hyperventilating, crying, freaking out. Mary is just trying to keep her calm, talk her down, tell her everything that's gonna, everything is going to be okay. As they're in the trunk, Mary tells her to breathe slowly so that they don't run out of air. She tries to get Beth to say prayers with her to calm her down and to redirect her thoughts. During the drive, the man stops twice. The man stops the car twice because of they were moving too much and making too much noise in the trunk of the car. Jeez. The first time he stops, he throws a spare tire on top of them to try to quiet them down and make it so that they can't move. The second time he stops, the man stops near a children's park where two boys, both about eight years old, are playing. The two boys notice an odd man as soon as the car stops and they notice this man kind of acting a little strangely and as eight-year-old boys do, they get a little curious and kind of run toward the car. One boy stays in the front of the car, keeping watch, while the other rushes to the back curiously to see what's going on. As soon as he sees the woman and the girl in the trunk, he turns to yell toward his friend. But before he can even get a word out, the man grabs him, throws him in the trunk, slams it, and drives off.
0: Oh. That was not how I was expecting that to go at all.
1: And now in the trunk, there's Mary, Beth, and this young boy. As soon as he's thrown in the trunk, he immediately begins to cry and panic. Mary, again, trying to be that calm, that voice of reason, that problem solver, tries to talk him down. In her motherly voice, she starts asking his name and telling him hers. He says his name is Jason, but he can't stop crying. Eventually, through the tears... Jason says that he was supposed to visit his grandma that weekend and he wants to go home. Beth says, We were too. We were supposed to visit grandma too. That boy's name was Jason Wilkman. And the boy that he was playing with at the park, his name was Timothy. Their moms were best friends, mm-hmm. they played together all the time. As soon as Timothy saw Jason get thrown in the trunk, he runs home immediately. He didn't live far at all from the park so he runs to his house where his mom and Jason's mom were having coffee waiting for the boys to return. Timothy runs crashes into his mom crying hysterically like gnashing teeth into her. His mother is so confused and it takes a few minutes for her to even calm her down enough to say what's going on like tell me what happened and eventually Timothy says a man took Jason he threw Jason in his car. The two mothers run to the run to the park in a panic and quickly call the police. At this point, it's about 6 p.m. Shortly after they call the police, it takes only about three minutes for the police to arrive at the park, where they quickly shut down all of the exits and begin an immediate search. Mm-hmm. No one is allowed to leave the park. Everybody is asked to help with the search. Everybody is questioned, who did you see? Where did you see? Anything.
0: Is this a decent-sized park? Like a...
1: It wasn't a big park. Mm. It was kind of, if you ever lived in like an apartment complex or a little like kind of housing neighborhood mm-hmm. where they have like, you know, just like a the little neighborhood community park. park. Yeah. The neighborhood park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was kind of just like a small neighborhood park. So there were a ton of kids there. A ton of kids just about Jason and Beth's age. Police interviewed all of them. To see, did you see anything weird? Did you see anyone, you know, that didn't belong here? And, of course, kids at that age are terrible witnesses. Yeah, yeah. You know, as they said, they saw a man with thick glasses. They saw a man in a car. But nobody could really give them anything really kind of credible to go on or any lead that they could actually follow. Oh, I saw a guy, a tall guy. I saw a guy with glasses.
0: Right. None of that was super helpful for, for police. Yeah, I guess my mind just went to like, unless it's like a decent sized park, like a big park that you'd need to like drive in, like a metro park, like securing the exits. If five minutes has passed, like it's none doing. Like, yeah, you know?
1: like we have a park around us that's maybe the size of three football fields. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it was probably about that size, like big enough that you have to like kind of get it secure.
0: Yeah, but, but I mean, I know the park yeah. you're talking about. Like, you could still drive into that park, do something quickly, be out of that park, and if you're in a car, easily two, mm-hmm. three minutes.
1: And and the man was not there for more than a couple of minutes. He opened the trunk to check on Mary and Beth and was only there long enough to throw
0: Jason in the trunk. I'm interested in what that says about this guy as a perpetrator. Like, mm-hmm. is it panic is it like just cold-blooded like you're in my way you know like who is this guy
1: we are gonna keep on going and you're gonna find okay. out because while all of this was going on the police at the park the uh, the little boy's mother freaking out um the man in the car was had a singular mission and that was to own mary stoffer After he forced Jason into the trunk, he turns back around and returns back to that wooded wooded region um, at the edge of Anoka County. The area was known as the Carlos Avery Wildlife Region. It was a big wooded area. It wasn't very well populated like hiking trails or anything like that. It was a wildlife preserve. So he stops the car in a wooded area. He pulls Jason from the car and forces him out. He grabs an unknown item from the car Based on what we'll learn later, this was likely a tire iron or a crowbar. He walks Jason into the woods while Mary and Beth are still strapped down in the trunk. And he beats Jason Wilkman to death and hides his body Uh. in the woods. Wordlessly, he walks back to the car and drives away. Jason Wilkman was a completely innocent victim. He had nothing to do with with what
0: this man had planned. It's or just anything absolute there. wrong place, wrong time. Like the most ruthless completely, way. Completely.
1: Completely. This was just a precocious kid that just did
0: what eight year old boys do. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Wow. The man drives around for hours. At one point he finally stops at an electronics store. Hmm. And allows Mary and Beth out to use the restroom and gives them some juice before forcing them back into the van. That's interesting. Finally, as it's starting to get dark, he drives the car back to his house in Roseville. His house was just six miles away from Mary Stoffer's apartment.
0: Did he know her? We're gonna talk about it. We're getting there. Okay.
1: Just get ready for the Tommy-centric triggers. Okay.
0: We haven't hit them yet?
1: Uh, Well, the kid stuff, definitely. I knew that was going to be one. As they pull into the driveway of his house, the man silently forces Beth out of the car. He blindfolds her, binds her, and walks behind her, forcing her into the house. He walks her upstairs with his gun held to her back, finally stopping at a closet where he takes off the blindfold and forces her in. He then goes back to the car for Mary and marches her up to the closet in the same way. He binds the two of them in shackles and chains, where he forces them to stay in a four foot by 21 inch closet that had clearly been prepared with pillows,
0: blankets, and other things for their stay. Wow. So, well, it was initially curious to me that he um, beat Jason to death with Mm -hmm. a tire iron or a crowbar. When he's armed with a gun in mm-hmm. a rural area, nobody would hear or care about a gunshot. I just looked up the Carlos Avery State Wildlife Preserve, nope. and it's incredibly remote. So Nobody would have. Nobody would have so heard I'm it. So I'm curious if it was, like, strictly meant to be an intimidation tool and not really, like, his violence mode. Like, if his violence mode is significantly more personal because that – I mean, even though Jason was a complete stranger to him in a complete wrong place, wrong time, like – beating somebody with a crowbar is significantly more gory and difficult and you know ruthless than a shotgun
1: he never used the gun hmm. ever i don't think it was a shotgun i think it was a handgun hmm. um because he was ho- he was able to conceal yeah, it that's true but yeah i don't think he ever intended to use the gun um The idea that he beat Jason to death with a tire iron is disturbing as fuck. Yeah, yeah. Like, he had no connection to this person.
0: No, and I I just, like, I'm trying to figure out, like, who I think this person is before you tell me who he is. (laughs) And I just, like, I think it's a curious choice when you do have a gun Mm -hmm. and you're in an incredibly rural place to do that instead. Which also takes longer than... Mm-hmm. to shoot somebody it takes more energy more emotion and more physicality
1: yeah but also like i don't know you have to be colder to mm-hmm. do that to beat an eight-year-old child that has nothing to do with anything to death yeah. i am gonna send you because i want to show you this is how mary and beth were chained together mm. This is how Mary and Beth would be chained together for the next seven weeks.
0: Seven weeks. Yes. Okay. So to describe this, they both have like um, like a waistband around them, like that kind of looks like a seatbelt, and then um, kind of a third uh, like strip of leather or plastic or whatever that is, kind of between their legs, and then they both have that on as like a harness, and then the the they're chained together via like a D ring in the middle, basically.
1: So as they're, ba- they're bound in those shackles, they spend the night in this four foot by 21 inch closet where, like I said, they would spend the next seven weeks. Meanwhile, while all of this go- is going on, Irv is waiting at home with their six-year-old son, Steve, mm-hmm. along with Mary's sister, Sandra, who had come over for the night to make them dinner. It was getting dark. It had hit like seven, eight o'clock. Irv knew that there was no reason for Mary to be this late, especially when she had Beth with her. So Irv started off by calling the salon, and the salon said that, yeah, they were there, but they had left hours ago. He started contacting his missionary colleagues to see if anybody had seen her around, had she stopped for coffee and lost track of time. He then started calling the hospitals, maybe wondering if there had been an accident or something. He went so far as to drive her route to the salon and back, just in case there had been an accident that nobody had reported. Mm -hmm. He exhausted every single reasonable conclusion that we would typically be told to exhaust before we start to panic. And once he had exhausted all of those, he called the police. And this was right around 7.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. that he finally contacted the police. When he called them, the police told him essentially to wait You know, we'll be on alert, we'll keep an eye out, but Mary's an adult, she's an authority of Beth, and they're probably safe and will return home in no time. Oh, we heard this before. How many times do we hear this? But to be fair, Roseville and Arden Hills were relatively small suburbs, and most most of the officers were now occupied looking for a boy that had been taken into a strange car that afternoon. Oh, good point, yeah. Irv said that he got the impression that the cops thought that this was a domestic dispute and weren't going to take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until much later when the police searched the park that Jason had disappeared from and they had seen how close it was to Mary's home, literally just a few miles away, and they began to put things together. When they searched the woods, they found Mary's car and identified it by the license plate, which actually they had found the license plate, Like, in the brush, it had apparently been torn off Hmm. from where he was driving through the brush to try to hide the car. Interesting. By the time the police had put these two disappearances together, the town of Roseville would have 300 police dedicated to the search for Jason, Mary, and Beth. Wow. They would quickly bring in the FBI due to the disappearance of the two children. And to be fair, in this instance, the police and the FBI worked really well together. Um, They were diligent and really dedicated to... Solving this case, but for spoilers, their police work didn't really go
0: very far. Well, seven weeks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They tried; they really were dedicated to solving this case, but it did not. Their investigation really did not is not what saved these two people. Mm. So, while police are searching in vain, Mary and Beth are trapped in the closet with a strange man. Like I said, they were left in they were left in the closet overnight. But the next day, the man pulls Mary out of the closet and walks her to the living room. He leaves Beth behind, but the chain that they were tied to left several feet so that Beth would stay in the closet and Mary would follow him to the living room. In the living room, he had laid down a blanket and a video recorder. Oh, God. He ties Mary to the furniture and turns on the camera to record them. He sits next to her and asks... Do you remember a student who developed a formula for an algebra problem? Oh, shit. Mary's memory is immediately triggered to an odd, but not unsettling, gifted math student that she had taught years ago in her ninth grade math class at Alexander Ramsey High School in Roseville. As she tries to recall the student, he reveals his name, Ming-Sen Shu. Shu tells her that the B grade that she had given him in that class was the sole blemish on his otherwise perfect academic record. And because of her, he was unable to attend college. He was drafted into the Vietnam War, where he was captured, held as a POW, and tortured. That all of his misery, all of the pain that he had experienced in life, was Mary's fault for the grade that she had given him, and that now she needed to pay for it.
0: Well, that's a teacher nightmare. I said very specific triggers. Mm-hmm.
1: So, this is where we're going to stop and talk. Who is Ming Sen Shu? Ming Sen was 29 years old. He was born in Taiwan in 1950. Both of his parents were high achieving academics. His mother was a mathematician, his father was a forestry worker. Who are a forestry researcher who actually developed what's known as the Continuous Forestry Inventory System, a system that is still used today to track forestry and health and natural resource areas. He had written dozens of books on conservation and agriculture. He was an incredibly well respected researcher and scientist.
0: Interesting. So, this is a person that grew up under a lot of academic pressure.
1: And a lot of kind of expectations. He was the oldest and the firstborn son in a Taiwanese family. In 1958, his father was offered a job at the University of Minnesota. His family had actually been waiting to have more children until they could immigrate to the U.S. That was always their plan. And so after Ming Sen was born, they started applying vigorously, knowing that they would have more opportunities once they moved to the U.S., so when his father was offered this job at the university of minnesota
0: which if you guys don't know this is an incredibly prestigious like research institute it really is a yeah an amazing university an amazing place to be a researcher mm-hmm. yeah and especially if you're doing
1: agricultural and forestry research i can only imagine that this was kind of a dream job for his yeah, father no kidding So in 1958, the family settles in Roseville, Minnesota. Like I said, a suburb right near the university and right next door to Arden Hills. After the family moved, they had two more children. The children that the family had had after they moved to the U.S. were given English names. Mm. Something that Ming Ming Sen apparently really resented as he was teased and really resented his own name. On a completely unrelated note, I kept calling him ming sai mm. who is an incredibly prestigious chef
0: oh interesting and <laughs> definitely not <Yeah>. that person <laughs>
1: um but as i was i i was watching the new top chef or the new iron chef battle mm. and ming sai is on it while i was typing this oh, no and it was fucking up my i'm bad at wordsing and you know this and this is fucking <laughs> it up really bad Anyway, um, so within three years of moving, however, so they moved in 1958, and by 1961, um, Shu's father died suddenly. Mm. Natural causes, very sudden, very kind of traumatic for the family. But apparently before he had passed, Shu's father told him that now he would be the man of the house and that he was in charge. Now, Shu apparently took this to the extreme, As he got older, he became not only a bully to his younger brothers, not only abusive toward them, but downright sadistic. Mm. One brother, he would beat with a belt until he was black and blue. His younger brother, he once forced into an oven and turned it on. Oh, my God. And this didn't stop when he was an adult. Even as they grew up, as they entered adulthood, he was physically assaulting his brothers. Was his um, and mother his mother was. Aware of this? We're going to talk okay. about that. His mother wasn't immune from his own abuse. Oh wow! Although she caught a different kind of abuse from him. On several occasions, his mother awoke a- awoke to find Shu in her bedroom. <gasps> he once instructed one of his younger brothers to go into her room and to touch her breast. Shu once cut a hole in her pajamas in an attempt to view her genitals. It would seem that by the time he was a teenager, between the sadistic behavior and the sexually driven behavior toward his mother, really few people in his life were safe from his torment. He threw rocks at vehicles. He started fires. He started fires in alleyways in apartment buildings. It was
0: a disaster. And his mother was terrified of him. This is like, how many signs can a person throw up that they are going to commit horrendous acts of violence in their life so by the
1: age of 14 he was arrested and ordered into therapy thank fucking god right his mother pled for help when he went to court she said i can't control him he's not afraid of anything he takes no responsibility he has no emotions i don't know what to do with him He was diagnosed at the time with adjustment reaction of adolescence, um, which to me just feels like one of those random diagnostic codes that I have to put in because I don't know quite what's going on with this kid yet
0: but I need to throw something in there. Is that a code that would still be given? It sounds super archaic. We
1: might give like an adjustment disorder. Mm. Like an adjustment disorder essentially means, okay, there was a specific trigger that caused a major behavior problem. We're not sure if it's going to develop or if it's long-term enough to be something else, like a personality disorder, a conduct disorder, depression, Mm. whatever. Um... So that's why it's kind of very much like kind of a placeholder this diagnosis. was, oh my God, it's such a placeholder mm. diagnosis. Yes, exactly. That should have probably been updated after more evaluation and it doesn't seem like it ever was.
0: But I mean, I just yeah. like nobody is prepared to parent this, this a person like this, like in this situation, no. like no, nobody is prepared to, to handle this. This is not within the normal scope of like parenting bullshit that you deal with, you know?
1: No, this is not a normal, this is not normal childhood development. This is not a normal or even a grief reaction to his father's death. So at the age of 14, he was placed in Woodview Detention Home. He uh, was often reported even at the detention home for voyeurism um, and known to be a behavioral problem uh voyeurism is essentially being a peeping tom looking at people undressing in a sexual way when they're not aware of it available juvenile records describe him as quote a lonely somewhat disturbed youngster more deeply troubled than he has been able to say so people knew something was going on with this kid and nobody it feels like really had a good conceptualization of quite what yeah His therapist described him as resistant to treatment, but stated that he really, really needed the continued treatment. Like, I don't care if he's resistant. He needs to be in therapy. Mm. Although after his probation, he would stop going. It says that his mother stopped taking him. And honestly, like, we don't know why. I don't know if she wasn't able to bring him, not able to pay for it, if it wasn't state mandated. Also, once kids get to a certain size, you cannot force them to go. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you can drag an 8-year-old to therapy even if they don't want to go. It's real hard to do that with a 14, mm-hmm. 15-year-old.
0: And I would even think dragging an 8-year-old is kind of on the edge, like, of what really physically can be done. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Yeah, exactly.
1: However, by the time high school hit, Ming-sen had at least by outward appearances seemed to have gotten it together. Whatever he was dealing with, he, by, again, by outward appearances, seemed to have managed mm. it. He attended Alexander Ramsey High School in Roseville, Minnesota. He was considered a highly gifted student who excelled not only in the classroom, but in sports, playing on the football team as a starter. Mm. His freshman year of high school, he took algebra with Miss Mary Stoffer as his
0: teacher. Yikes.
1: Other students would murmur and there were rumors and gossips that he had a crush on Miss Stauffer. Mary didn't seem
0: too concerned because you're a high school teacher. Does that generally concern you? No. I (laughs) – no. I mean, there are some times even that you kind of like laugh about like like – like there's always like a genre of kid that is going to have a crush Mm -hmm. on you, you know? (laughs) What's your genre of kid? That um, has a crush on I you? tend to be very popular amongst the nerd herd and uh, basketball boys.
1: Really, yep. mm-hmm.
0: but no, like you would not, <sighs> especially if like, and and I've had a couple of times in my career where a student really crossed a line, like crossed a boundary that was mm-hmm. like very mm-hmm. obvious and very uncomfortable. Yeah. I've had kids cross boundaries innocently, like they didn't realize what they were doing. Uh,
1: oh yeah, especially the nerd her. Yeah. I
0: mean, for example, like like a, a kid that crossed a boundary that really was very disturbing to me was a kid who um tried to give me like a sensual back rub during a pep rally. Yeah. That was extremely disturbing. Um one that was like like the kid really crossed a boundary but did not realize it and then was super embarrassed later. It was like a kid who stopped me. Um they were an artist. And they kind of stopped me and they were like, can I, I just really love your body. Can I just draw your body? And they, I was like, it's really not okay for you to comment on my body. Um, yeah. So let's, let's not basically, you know, and they were humiliated. Like they didn't realize like the, oh, tr- the transgression that they had made. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and certainly like stuff like that, especially when you're young, like that does happen. And you know, um, I, had, we had a kid at one point that was, um, had a, a foot fetish and a friend oh of mine has lovely feet. She knows who she is <laughs> and, hey. and, uh, this kid made a comment at one point during state testing that he could not focus because she was wearing sandals and we were all just like, <laughs> Yeah. <sighs> So all that to say, like, it does happen. Um, I would say, like, you, when there's a physical component, we everyone's defenses go up. Yeah. But, like, when that line doesn't get crossed and it's kind of, like, feels like kind of, like, innocent schoolyard crush, like, you do know. Mm-hmm. You know when it's crossing a line and you know when it's, like, just kind of that innocent, like, kid bullshit, you know?
1: Yeah, and for Mary... It seemed more that, like, innocent, whatever. To be honest, from what Mary has said, Shu didn't really make that much of an impression at all. Like, he was a fine student, but it wasn't much more than that. So he was very much in that category of, like, okay, that's cute, whatever. Well, it's
0: very striking to me that she didn't recognize him right away.
1: Well, he was 29 as opposed to 15.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would, like, my oldest students would now be in their mid-twenties. Mm-hmm. And I would like to think I would recognize most, if not all of them, if I saw them somewhere.
1: She says that she did not really recognize
0: them. I believe her. I just think that's really interesting. I mean, is there a racial component here? Mm, well, that was my other question. Like, yeah. so my other question was, is this an area with a large or at least a prominent Asian population?
1: Well, we know that Minnesota has a pretty prominent uh, Hmong population. Taiwanese, I don't believe it's as
0: large. But I wonder about like this in nineteen eighty 1980- specifically. Let me just look it up real quick because <laughs> I also like it was striking to me. Oh, what is it, Alden Hills? You said
1: Arden, A R D E N.
0: I. It was striking to me once you kind of told us his his backstory that um, the kids at the park didn't say oh there was an asian guy here which like in a in a diverse community it would not be like notable or particularly interesting but if it is like an all-white town with like a couple of families that are not white like it would be obvious you know so the children
1: would give a um i'm actually gonna send you the sketch that the kids gave Mm. that the kids contributed to apparently the sketch looked like irv huh
0: um i i yeah it looks like Alden hills is hovered around uh 90 to 95 percent white and three to four percent asian for its mm -hmm. entire inception
1: That's the sketch that the kids would give from the park.
0: Oh, oh. Interesting. And then
1: this is... This is Ming-sen. So you tell me if those look
0: alike or... Mm. Although I will say the sketch is not a great sketch... But it's not the worst sketch I've ever seen. And it is striking to me that they got the right age. It says about 30. Mm-hmm. Black hair, dark complexion, dark eyes. I'm curious about what his actual height was. Because they have also like a pretty tight height range. 5'9 to 5'11 is what's on the sketch. That's just a couple mm-hmm. of inches. That's pretty tight range. So wow. So just sent you yeah, the sketch is, like, definitely, like, um, a bowl cut, basically. The guy looks, I would say, ethnically ambiguous. Yeah. Personally, like, if it was colorized, I think you could probably, you know, it could go a lot of different ways, I guess. But Meng San-shu mm-hmm. is, like, a very clean-cut looking guy. Like, close-cropped hair. Kind of Buddy Holly glasses, like no facial hair, like looks very clean cut, like kind of preppy Mm -hmm. almost.
1: And that's a kind of a cleaner picture of him. There are other ones of like shortly after and closer to the arrest where he's looking a little bit scragglier. Mm -hmm. That I think probably was a little bit more his. So there's kind of more
0: his daily appearance. Yeah. I mean, it's still the Buddy Holly glasses. He's still... He has, like, a faint mustache, but not really any facial hair, like. When,
1: you know, when young people get a mustache and it doesn't grow in Mm -hmm. all the way. It's like, I'm trying here, you
0: guys. Mm -hmm. But it's still, no, it does not have the, like, I know, the the sketch definitely looks like I'm a bad guy, you know, like kind of sketch.
1: And it's given by a bunch of eight-year-olds, right? And also, I'm going to send you the map. I'm going to put all of these. Will obviously be up on the socials, but this is the map of where everything happened.
0: Ah, uh, okay.
1: Yeah, so everything is super close together. Mm-hmm. It's within a handful of miles, uh, other than the Carlos Avery Wildlife Park. Jason Wilkman is abducted, basically Caddy Corner from so where Marianne Beth. It's so close. Bet.
0: Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's really that's very striking. How close that all is. I think it's really interesting that he seemed to have a plan, though, like, and I I hope that we'll get into his head a little bit more later, but, like, why drive? Because did he drive twice to the wildlife area?
1: Yeah. My thought is that he was trying to disorient them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think he was trying to disorient them. I think he was waiting for it to get dark so that he could get them into the house while it was dark. And I think he wanted them to think that they were further away because if they knew that they were six miles away from home, point yeah, and they knew that they were in their own stomping grounds, their own home, Mm -hmm. things would have been completely different. Yeah, yeah. I think that Mary would have processed it very different because, as we're going to see, Mary's a badass, obviously. (laughs) All right. Yes. Continue um, on, Sally forth. Mary did not think much whatsoever about this crush from this kid again teachers get crushes Mary was Mary was cute as hell (laughs) very perfectly 80s style and I don't think that it she she thought twice about it she had only taught for two years and then she moved on with her life shortly after she finished her two-year tenure she was back in the Philippines but while Mary moved on, she never did. His infatuation grew and b- kind of became a full-blown obsession. He began to fantasize about Mary, writing out his sexual fantasies with Mary and other actresses. They would find over 700 pages of written-out violent, sadistic sexual fantasies about Mary, wow. in which ming Sen would rape and violate her and other women sometimes in mary and the women alternatively like begging him to rescue them begging him to please them but then it always turning into this violent rape fantasy even after mary left teaching and went on her first mission trip in 1967 this obsession was growing and growing and growing for years he harbored these fantasies and every year they became darker and more violent When the family moved back to Minnesota, he began stalking her, following her, hiding, always out of sight, always in a place where she would not be able to see him. She had no idea that he had been stalking her this entire time. And slowly, day by day, the longer she was in Minnesota, Ming Sen began to take more risks. At one point, he sought out the address of Irv Stoffer. An address that he found in Duluth, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. He went to this address in Duluth one night in 1975 and broke into the home with a gun. He forced the residents out of their beds and onto the ground where he had tied them up, only to realize that this was not the home of Mary and Irv Stoffer, but the home of Mary's in laws, Irv Sr. Oh my and his God. wife. So he broke in and nearly kidnapped Mary's in-laws. Wow. At the time, Mary and Irv were actually in the Philippines.
0: But I mean, this really, I just want to take a moment to appreciate what this family has been through, because that is also incredibly traumatizing, obviously, for Irv Jr.'s parents, but also just to know (laughs) that that happened to your loved ones is really horrifying.
1: Well, and here's the thing. Irv and Mary never knew about this while they were in the Philippines. Ming Sen would eventually let them go, but threatened that if they ever reported this, if they ever went to the police, if they ever told anyone, he would come back and kill them. Mm. So they never did report this incident to the police. Wow! They didn't tell Mary and Irv about it until four years later in 1979. Hmm. Like, they were terrified, genuinely. And so when they came back from the Philippines in 1979, 1980, Ming Sen pretty quickly learned where the family was living and started stalking them at the apartments at Bethel College. Wow. So, because Irv was kind of a figure in the Baptist community and at Bethel College, there was an announcement given in the local papers about Irv's return that he would be giving in a lecture whatever so based on these announcements he would follow her he knew that mary would be at erb's lectures he would stand in the back and watch her and stalk her and eventually he would attempt three more break-ins oh wow to their apartment none of which were successful and none of which even seemed like nearly as successful as the first one has had been I'm guessing that Irv Sr. probably was the kind of guy that left his doors unlocked at night mm. leading up to, like, before this. So it made breaking in easier. And I'm guessing that after Irv and Mary heard about that, then they started locking their doors, even if they felt that they were living in a safe community. Sure. Um, so ming sen had attempted three break-ins like i said the family didn't see aware didn't seem aware of any of these attempted break-ins except one clue that he left an odd pile of sawdust and plaster in the room underneath their bedroom that's weird he literally tried to saw under their bedroom into
0: their like wow yeah that's very odd it's his
1: behavior is so odd, and at some points it seems so calculated, and at some points it seems pretty disorganized.
0: You know what it seems to me though is like it seems calculated but not expert. Yes. You know, like this is somebody who's thinking very, very deeply about what they're doing, but is also uh-huh. not good at it, right?
1: Yes. Yes. He's planning, he's researching, he's just a not good executor. Mm-hmm. But Ming was there in church when Irv had announced to the congregation that the family would soon be leaving for the Philippines. Mm. And while he was there at church that day, he heard that message, and what he heard was a secret communication that he needed to rescue Mary so that the two could start their life together. Now, if you are wondering, thinking back to the original story that Ming Sen had told Mary... Was he ever in Vietnam? Was she the reason why he couldn't go to college? Was he in a POW camp?
0: No. Not a fucking word of that was true. Well, no B in an algebra class is going to keep you out of college. (laughs) If that's true, I would have exactly zero degrees.
1: (laughs) Ming Sen not only successfully completed high school, he graduated number one in his class and was voted most likely to succeed Mm, by his peers. Yeah. He attended the University of Minnesota, but left after he failed his first calculus class. His mother, however, supported him. She saw that he had a gift for electronics and a gift for technology. And she supported him to purchase and develop his own electronics store. And he ran that business successfully in Roseville, where he lived and grew up. He lived in that same house in Roseville with his younger brother running the electronics store the entire time that he had Mary and Beth living
0: in his home. So when they pulled off to go to the bathroom and get some juice, is that where it was? Because you said it was an electronics store. Okay.
1: That was the electronics store that they stopped at. Hmm. But why did he tell Mary all of this shit about Vietnam and being a POW? Mm. Because he needed a sob story. He needed Mary to feel guilty. He needed Mary to feel like she deserved what was about to happen to her. That she had done something to ruin his life so that she would feel guilty and beg him for forgiveness. Because that was all Ming Sen wanted, was her begging. But in that moment, Mary knew exactly what was happening. She was like, this is not fucking right. This isn't true. Like you said, no B is going to keep you from going to college. No B in your freshman year algebra Mm -hmm. class is going to keep you from attending college. But in that moment, Mary knew that she needed to make him feel okay. She needed to keep calm in the situation. So she apologized. She said, I'm so sorry. It wasn't right how I treated you in hopes that he would change his plans, that he would show her some kindness. But Ming-sen continued. And while she was tied to the furniture, as he finishes his diatribe and he finishes his lecture at her, he began to remove her clothes and he said, quote, I don't want your scars to be physical. I want them to be emotional. I want you to feel dirty, debased and degraded. Ugh. And he raped her for six hours that day, recording the entire event. My God. Despite this horrendous episode, the entire six hours, Mary just repeatedly told herself, this is happening to my body, not my soul. And when he was done, he threw her back in the closet with Beth. The next day, Shue instructed Mary to write a letter to Irv. He had her write a draft first of what he wanted her to say, telling her to write that she took Beth because she wasn't ready to leave for the Philippines, that things were moving too fast and she needed time. But she and Beth would return in four days time for their flight. He forced her to write a first draft, which he checked for secret messages. He then had her write a second draft. He put on gloves, sealed it, and sent it over to
0: Irv. Wow.
1: Yep. Now, Irv would obviously get the letter, and he would send it directly to the FBI and the cops, who would be like, this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a clue, but clearly this is this a is bullshit not letter what that happened. she was forced to yeah. write. Because <laughs> by this time, the by this point, the police are like... Yeah, no, she would kidnap. Mm-hmm. This is fucked. Mary lived through the torment of rape, torture, and degradation day after day. Mary and Beth remained bound at the waist in a chain-length, leash-like setup. They had space between them so that they could move a few feet from each other. She would, untrain, would unchain Mary and remove her from the closet to rape her. He never did rape or assault Beth or rape Mary in the presence of Beth.
0: But he was prepared for both of them.
1: I don't know if he was fully 100% prepared for Beth, but he was willing to accept it.
0: Oh, well, it's it's interesting to me that he had two harnesses prepared, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, that seems... When
1: I look at that picture, I'm like, is that two harnesses? Or did he just kind of, like, jerry-rig something? Mm, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah. Because, like, he was clearly, obviously prepared for Mary, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was just he took this opportunity because it was what he knew he was going to have yeah, and just ran but here with here
0: she is. I have to do this. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I have this a little bit later, but, like, he would eventually start, like, building this fantasy of them being a family. He would start calling Beth Bethy. He would get her a television so she could watch cartoons and coloring books and, like, trying to be this very weird parental figure toward her. Weird um which obviously Beth was not comfortable with whatsoever mm-hmm. so although he would never rape or sexually assault Beth he would use her to manipulate Mary because he obviously knew that this was Mary's biggest fear was that something bad would happen to mm-hmm. Beth. She worked so
0: fucking hard to keep Beth calm and to keep her safe. But Mary's also, like, very well aware that this man is more than capable of killing a child. A hundred percent.
1: Um, For what it's worth, Mary genuinely convinced herself that Jason was okay oh, throughout wow. this entire thing. She genuinely force herself to believe that he just let jason go we'll talk about it later when like they do the police investigation but yeah
0: okay we need to put a pin in
1: that yeah uh so for example on one occasion Shu was unsatisfied with just assaulting mary he wanted mary to show her affection he wanted mary to care for him and show him love he told mary to kiss him to be affectionate and be passionate to which mary obviously refused and she fought back the little bit that she could she responded to this by grabbing a large clear plastic bag turning to beth and saying have you ever watched someone die by suffocation Oof. he turned to mary you're about to watch your daughter die by suffocation he grabbed beth and wrapped the bag around her entire body shoving it underneath her and holding it closed he said it'll take four to five minutes She'll gradually breathe up all the oxygen in the bag, and then she'll die. Beth, begging from inside the bag, asks, Mom, what does he want you to do? And Mary replied, saying, He wants me to sin. And Beth begs her, Oh, Mom, don't sin. But please, can I come out from under this bag? It's so hot in here. He held Beth in that plastic bag for nearly five minutes. And tell Beth, could no longer stand the sight of seeing the sweat running down mary's face and starting to see her struggle to breathe and with desperation she quickly gave shu a, pe- a kiss on the lips which he was unsatisfied with so she kissed him again Shu finally removed the bag from beth and dragged mary off to what she would describe as the most horrible rape session she had experienced And this was the terror that Mary and Beth lived with for weeks, weeks after week. Shu terrorized the two and raped Mary all the while maintaining his day job at the electronics store. He would keep the two chained up in the closet most days. But on some days when he was feeling extra sadistic, he would take Beth, lock her in a box that he would keep in his van while he was at work. Wow. Yeah. Which Beth shockingly would survive in the summer heat with no water and no restroom for the entire day. It's pretty
0: amazing in and of itself, yeah.
1: Only to be returned to the house and then locked back in the closet. On the 10th day, by the 10th day, Shu had become comfortable enough to let Mary and Beth out of the closet while he was home. He allowed them showers and allowed Mary to make meals with the canned food and minimal supplies that he would provide with them. This was actually something that Mary had managed to kind of negotiate mm. with Shu. Saying, well, Beth is a child. She needs nutrition to survive. You need to get us actual food. Because until then, he was basically giving them, like, bread and water. My guess is why she did this is he knew that if anything, like, irreparably bad happened to Beth, Mary was going to become fucking unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Like, Beth was a bargaining chip, essentially. As long as Mary had to keep it together for Beth, Mary was more controllable. So, like I said, Shu starts bringing Beth board games and a TV, and calling her Bethy, and having family dinners together, and it's really fucking creepy. Um, now, like I said, this entire time Shu's younger brother was living with him in the basement. Yeah. So the impression that I got was his younger brother fucking hated him. Yes. Like thought he was a horrible human because he was. Mm. And that his brother tried his damnedest to just never cross paths with Shu. He never went upstairs. He would only notice, like, oh, the kitchen's really clean today. Hmm. That's weird. Oh, it looks like he cooked. That's weird. At one point, he told his friend, I think my brother has a girlfriend and that's fucked up because my brother's disgusting. Mm -mm. True. If eventually uh the younger brother would move out he would go for he would leave for like a year abroad and when the younger brother moved out she would start letting them kind of move more freely around the house again kind of back home irv is working with the police trying to find his wife and child she knows that they have to be looking for him especially after he had murdered jason like this was kind of a fucked up situation Mm -hmm. So Shu wants the police to believe that Mary left because of a domestic dispute. Um, But he was watching the media and he knew that the police thought that this was a kidnapping. So he forces Mary to write a second letter. Mm. And the second letter instructing her to write asking Irv to call off the police that nothing wrong is that and that she was never coming back. Like, hi, Irv, nothing's wrong. It's fine. I didn't get kidnapped. I'm just never coming back tell the police to stop
0: so this is obviously a spoiler but do they recover jason's body before the end of the seven weeks okay no
1: no they they would not recover jason's body until after actually um his trial wow yeah he uses that as a bargaining chip in his sentencing Mm. um Again, throughout all of this, Mary is constantly aware and alert. Mary is a badass, okay? Like, she is trying to catch any glimpses of information that could possibly save them, that could possibly be used. Mm -hmm. At one point, Shu brings them a bag of cleaned blankets from um, a dry cleaner to help kind of pad the closet and keep them warm. But he forgot to take the dry cleaning receipt from the bag. Mm -hmm. And the dry cleaning receipt had the house's address on it.
0: Oh, good for her.
1: So, Mary memorized the address on the receipt and forced Beth to memorize it, too, before she destroyed the receipt Mm. so that he would have no idea that the two of them knew where they were.
0: And that's when she realizes she's so close to home, too.
1: She had to have realized how close she was to home then. Because, like, you know your neighboring towns, Mm -hmm. right? yeah. She was always looking for a place to escape. She was always looking at the windows and at the door hinges and everything. While she's doing that little by little, she was starting to feel more and more confident in his control of them. And one day he decides he's going to take them on a family vacation to Chicago. What? Yep. He told Mary and Beth that he was going to go to a job fair in Chicago and they were going to come with. Now, apparently his reasoning for this was he wanted to get a job in Chicago because he felt if he moved them to Chicago, they would be less likely to be found and there would be less police and less suspicion around him in general. So he rents a Winnebago and chains them together in the Winnebago, once again keeping his gun nearby to ensure that they would never make an attempt to escape. And they fucking drive a Winnebago to Chicago to this. He calls it, like, a, he calls it a conference, and it was a job mm. fair. So they're driving from Minnesota to Chicago. They get to Wisconsin. And he ended up taking them to a mall to go shopping because they were still wearing the same clothes. This had been weeks later. They were still wearing the same clothes they were kidnapped in. And he wanted them to look nice if they were going to look like a family. Mm. While they were at the mall, Mary is hyper alert, looking for ways to reach out to people with authorities. But Shu kept her super fucking close, always with his gun in hand, like would never let them more than a few feet away. He even made Mary pay for the fucking items. Wow. Mary used her traveler's checks, hoping that if she used a traveler's check, it would alert the bank that she had made a purchase in another state. Mm, smart. Smart, but it never went
0: anywhere, unfortunately. I mean, they had to have looked just awful before they got those new clothes.
1: I mean, at this point, he was allowing, the- allowing them to shower. Yeah. I don't know if he let them wash their clothes or something, but yeah, he finally let them buy new clothes, but they had been in those for weeks. Wow. So from Wisconsin, they head toward suburban Chicago in Elk Grove. So he gets a hotel in Elk Grove, but he never lets them go into the hotel. He just parks the Winnebago mm. there. Shu attends the job fair and networking event, living his life, whatever. Meanwhile, Mary and Beth are stuck in the Winnebago on a hot fucking summer. At one point, while they were in the parking lot of this fucking hotel, Beth starts banging on the windows. Every time she sees somebody walking by, she starts banging on the windows, trying to get somebody's attention. At one point, she fucking does. Mm. She gets the attention of a few teenage boys walking by, and she yells at them, Hey, can you help me? I've been kidnapped. And the boys just kind of laugh and keep walking by. Wow. As their Chicago trip came to a close, Mary convinced Shu to let her call the Bethel Apartments to see if Irv had waited for her. I don't know why um, Ming-sen agreed to this, but she convinced him to say, I want to call the Apartments. I want to call Bethel College. Mm. He takes her to a public pay phone, and with a gun at her back, he calls the church's main office and connects her with the services director. She gets him on the phone, and the director asks what her name is so that she can connect so that the director can connect her at this point ming is briefly distracted as somebody is yelling at him to move the winnebago mm. and as he's distracted as quickly as she can mary whispers it's me mary mary stoffer but the man doesn't understand what she says because she was talking too fast oh, no and ming returns his attention to mary and forces her to hang up as quickly as she can without any message getting through wow so they come back to Minnesota after all of this st- shit. At this point, when they get back, Shu's brother had moved out. Um, Mary and Beth are given more space in the home. Like I said, they're able to use the restroom, different parts of the house, but they're still chained together all day. On June 15th, Father's Day, Ming Sen, for whatever reason, decides to let Beth call her father. Hmm. Would you like to hear the audio of that? Yes.
0: Hello, Irv speaking. Hello, Dad. Yes, Bethy.
1: Are you okay?
0: Yeah.
1: Is mommy okay? Yes. That's good. Oh, I'm. Mommy, yes. Happy, happy
0: Father's Day. Oh, thank you so much, sweetie. We can't talk anymore. Um, when can you come home? No. Irv is cool as a cucumber. I still hear his brokenness. Oh, yeah. I mean, like he keeps it so cool for that little mm-hmm. girl. As a parent, you uh, hear his brokenness, but mm-hmm. I think that he did a really good job keeping it together for Beth.
1: Yeah, that kind of breaks my heart a little yeah, bit. That does. And I don't know. I guess I don't understand Shu's motivation for doing that. It feels malicious. Yeah. And it feels sadistic. I mean mine to like give this. Yeah. My knee
0: jerk is that that's that would be after he decided that he was going to kill them.
1: Mm hmm.
0: Honestly, like that's where my my mind goes is just like he's like, Okay, well, I'm gonna let this happen say and say your goodbyes cause I'm done. He went a little bit different. I think for him
1: he was getting more and more engrossed in this idea of being a family. Mm-hmm. Rather than killing them, he decided this is my family now. And there you should say goodbye to your dad because you're my family now. Mm. And we're we I'm your dad. Because Shortly after that, Mary overhears Ming Sen talking to the guy that he originally rented the Winnebago from, talking about how much it would cost to do a long-term rental. Ming Sen had thought, you know, it was kind of nice. Like, we had everything we need in the Winnebago, and we could just pick up and leave and go wherever we wanted. Mm -hmm. And that... You know, I could sell the house and we could be on the road and that's how we could live our lives. It would be much easier to stay away from the police than living in the literal town that you kidnapped this woman from. Yeah, Mary said when she overheard this phone call, she said it was at this moment that she knew they needed to get out, that Ming was never going to let them be free. Yeah. A few more weeks pass. On the 4th of July, Ming Sun takes Mary and Beth to Como Park to see the fireworks. Como Park is a big kind of park complex. Mm. Fields and fireworks and lakes Mm -hmm. and all of that shit. You know, a big popular area for the community. like, Like a metro park, like a big, big park. Yeah. He holds them both close, still with his gun at his side, never letting them more than a few feet away from him. Mary said that she saw at least three sheriff's vehicles during this trip. And she desperately tried to make eyes at them. She desperately tried to give them that look of, I'm in trouble, Mm -hmm. help me. But she was too terrified to say anything or to make a move. Her fear was, if I run, he'll take bath. He'll kill bath. But what she did do was, every time she saw a sheriff's vehicle... Or when she saw the sheriff's vehicle, she memorized the phone number on the side, repeating it to herself, repeating it to herself, repeating it to herself, because that was the local police department. And later when they got home, once again, she made Beth memorize it, too. Smart. Mary and Beth start, again, I, I think especially after the 4th of July, after they start seeing, oh, he's taking us in public. He doesn't care anymore. He We're his, he thinks. Yeah. They're starting to lose heart. They're starting to lose faith that this will ever come to an end. But Mary was doing her damnedest to stay strong, despite the torture, despite the rapes, despite the abuse and the neglect that they both suffered daily. Mary was looking for a way out. And she had decided, fuck this. We're getting out of here. I'm sure she didn't say fuck this because she was a good person. Right. (laughs) But she
0: said the equivalent of, yes.
1: She said the equivalent of it. Mm. um. And again, I think that Shu started picking up on this. The two of them are reading each other, at least pretty accurately, Mm -hmm. because he had been more more and more lax ever since his brother left, giving them more space on the chain to walk about the bathroom in the hallway. He started to worry about increasing their freedom in the home. And so once again, he's like, ah, no, you're going back into the closet. Mm, Fuck you guys. And this time... Once again tying them together looping the chain that had held them together around the top hinge from the closet door further limiting their movement. Mary sat in that closet day after day studying every inch for a way out trying and she said that she would always find herself staring at that hinge pin that their chain was tied to at the very top. On July 7th Ming Sen leaves for work the way that he always had, leaving them chained in the closet, connecting Mary and Beth, and the chain linked through the top hinge pin of the closet door and locking the closet door behind them. Mary waits, time goes by, hours, minutes go by, patiently waiting to make sure that he's gone. And with her bear, fucking hands and pure determination as she's been staring at this hinge pin day after day she starts to try to move it Mm -hmm. and she starts slowly little by little forcing the the top hinge pin out of the door Hmm. if you know what i'm kind of talking about the hinge pin if you look at like your closet your doors there's like the one at the top where There's like a little pin that closes, that closes down on Mm -hmm. it. And it's usually really fucking tight. Yeah. Like they're really hard to get out. With her bare hands, she just pulls it little by little, pushing it from the bottom, pulling it from the top, pushing it from the bottom. And she gets the top hinge pin out. And she waits a little bit longer and she tries with the bottom one. And she gets the bottom hinge pin out. And with nothing holding the door together, she's able to move it. The lock doesn't matter anymore Mm. once you get those hinge pins out. So she removes the door from the fucking door frame. But as soon as she moves it, Beth begins to panic. Mm. Like, full-on panic attack panic. Terrified that he's going to come home. And she doesn't know what punishment they're going to get if they tried to escape. Because they had never done Mm -hmm. this before. She starts panicking, hyperventilating, saying, no, mom, don't do it. He's going to hurt us. Mary actually smacks Beth at this point. Yes, like like just get it together. Get it together. In recalling this moment, Beth said, I did panic. She did smack me. She put the door back together and said to listen if he is here. She forced Beth to wait, listen carefully. She let some time go by, and then she told Beth, this is a sign from God. We need to take the door off, and we need to go now. So Beth was finally able to listen, and she followed her mother, shaking as they once again removed the hinge pins, moved the door, and slowly walked out of the closet. They first moved upstairs to the landline phone, where using the phone number that she had memorized, calls the Ramsey County sheriffs. Mm. They were put on hold twice. What? (laughs) They were put on hold twice when they called the sheriff. And then they were finally transferred to Sergeant Mike Fowler. And Mary gave them the address that she had memorized from the dry cleaning receipt, 1960 North Hamlin Avenue. She told them who she was, she said, I'm the kidnapping victim from nearby Arden Hills, the area by the Bethel College Apartments. And Sergeant Fowler asks her, is Jason with you? Like I said, up until that point, Mary had genuinely hoped and prayed and believed that Ming Sen had let Jason go home. She had no idea, or at least had convinced herself, that Jason was still alive. So when Sergeant Fowler asked her if he was a, if jason was with them she simply said no and a quote from a later interview with mary she said quote that was worse than the rapes or the initial kidnapping i had a six-year-old son friendly just like jason i could picture it i could picture it happening to him and i thought about jason's parents and prayed mm. that was the most devastating for me yeah i believe it Police said that they would send someone immediately to the address that they had given, and Mary and Beth ran outside. Mary wanted them to stay on the porch, but but Beth was getting too scared and pleaded with Mary that they would hide. But Mary was scared that if they hid, the police would drive by. Mm -hmm. So they crouched down behind an old car that was in the driveway, and within minutes, they saw the police car drive up. And they jumped out to run toward the police. When police arrived, Mary and Beth were still chained together at the waist, just like that picture that I sent you. That picture that I had sent you was from when they were taken to the poli- taken to police in custody. Wow. Even when they got to the police station, they were still chained together. I'm guessing because they wanted to preserve evidence. any fingerprint mm-hmm. or evidence that could have been there. But damn, that had to be so tough for yeah. them to stay that way.
0: At that day and age, too, like investigative work... A lot of times kind of depended on like also being able to like trace purchases, so if they could figure out like, mm-hmm. okay, the chain was bought at the Menard's in Arden Hills, and then they could find mm-hmm. a Menard's receipt in Mehu's house. like, yeah.
1: And actually, when the police arrived, what they first do is dies, Mary mm. and read her her rights confused Mary asks what's going on why she's being mirandized and police honestly from everything I've read really apologetically tell her that they have to mirandize her in interview about Jason's disappearance
0: ah well that's fair but yikes it
1: fair but goddamn that sucks Mm -hmm. so they're taken into custody Mary is really quickly like as soon as they start interviewing her Mary is cleared of any involvement in Jason's death Mm -hmm like again she genuinely tried to convince herself that he was still alive which i think is really heartbreaking um irv is called and irv arrives to the sheriff's station they're still chained together with bicycle locks and cables um i i also wonder how much like they were trying to figure out what is the least traumatizing way to cut these off
0: yeah
1: because like if they were chained together at the waist, they would have had to get, like, the jaws of life close to Beth's body. Mm-hmm. And that's traumatizing as yeah. fuck. So it wouldn't take long, though, once they finally got released and Mary is cleared of any suspicion of anything. They're reunited with their family and trying to feel okay and real and free.
0: And But how terrified would you be to go home? Like.
1: <sighs> you know, <sighs> It's so funny because I feel from everything that I read after Mary got those hinge pins out of the door, she was just confident as fuck. Mm. And even in a later interview that Irv would give, they would interview the whole family, but Irv would say that, like, as soon as she got home, she was right back to her old self. Hmm. I don't know if that's his wishful thinking or what, but... Yeah, she had to be. They both, especially Beth. Poor Beth. She's fucking eight years yeah. old. <sighs> um, so they're able to give all of Shu's information. The FBI eventually raided Shu's business and arrest him immediately. They search his home and business looking for every evidence. And they find hours and hours of tape of ming Sen raping Mary. Those tapes had to be transcribed by an officer, and later in preparation for court, Mary was made to watch them to prepare for the trial. Oh,
0: my God.
1: Like, holy fuck. That's unfair. Yeah.
0: Like, I feel like re-traumatizing <sighs> is not even, like, close to being a strong enough word for what that would be like.
1: No, and... I don't know. Again, like, I have no idea the strength that Mary Stoffer has here because she helped police put all the details into a timeline. She helped them transcribe the videos. She helped every single step of the way with this trial. And so Ming-Sen would actually have two trials. The first would be a federal trial for the kidnapping and taking victims across state lines. Mm -hmm. Like I said, portions of the video of the rapes would be shown in trial. Like, that's that poor fucking jury fuck um mary would be called to testify and mary bravely presented in court and was sworn in shortly after she was sworn in ming sen who was sitting in his in the defense box would jump from his seat lunge at mary from his chair to attack her but would be blocked by prosecuting attorney tom berg way to go tom berg who would wrestle him to the ground and he would be held down by federal agents. So he was obviously found guilty of the, of the kidnapping fucking duh. Mm -hmm. Like there is not a shred of evidence in his
0: favor. No, no, of course not.
1: However, during the trial, Shu had been holding back the location of Jason Wilkman's body. Um, They knew that he had done it. They knew obviously like the testimony that Mary and Beth were able to give. But he was using this as a bargaining chip. And so sentencing was delayed until they were able to make a deal with Ming-Sen. And so eventually he would agree as long as they took life off the table. Oh, for God's sake. Shu would lead authorities to the Carlos Avery Park where they would finally find Jason's body and determine cause of death as blunt force trauma. This was absolutely traumatizing to Jason's family because they were obviously hoping that their son would come back just as much as fucking Irv was hoping that Mary and Beth would come back. Yeah. They were really genuinely holding out hope, especially after Mary was found. Mm-hmm. Um, so since he gave up the location of Jason's body, Shu would be found guilty of kidnapping and sentenced to 30 years in prison with no chance of parole. This was in 1980. There was a subsequent trial for the murder of Jason Wilkman. Mary would once again have to testify, and once again, short, as soon as she was sworn in, Ming Sen would lunge from his seat. This time, he made it past the lawyers and marshals and was able to grab hold of Mary. Uh He grabbed her around the neck and grabbed for a knife that he had managed to smuggle into court. What the fuck? Yelling, get back or I'll kill her.
0: This guy is... Unhinged completely unhinged
1: like at no point does he ever ever give up on this he had told mary at one point it doesn't matter if i'm locked up for 25 years i'm coming back for you
0: and he has like no respect or regard or i i mean i feel like he's sensible enough to know the gravity of the situation that he's in like he understands that he's in court he understands what he's up Mm -hmm. against but he thinks that his mission is above that
1: yeah he thinks that his right to marry is well and above the court system well and above her bodily autonomy or anything when he attacks her he would cut her so deeply that it would require 62 stitches oh my god that courthouse should be ashamed of itself by the way fucking would because it was a lieutenant that was on the outside of the court that finally rushed in and grabbed him away from mary Like, how
0: did he get a knife in
1: there how did he get a knife in and how was it a lieutenant on the outside of the court system that had to rush in to do yeah. this but he grabbed mary away brought her dragged her in the back to where the judge's chambers were mary said she did not even feel the cut like it was that much adrenaline it was that much whatever yeah. This time, obviously, once again, he would be found guilty of Jason Wilkins' murder. He would be sentenced to 40 years to be served concurrently with his kidnapping sentence. What? Yes. So if you're doing the math, Shu was sentenced in 1980 to serve those 30 years federal, 40 years state. He was eligible for release in July of 2010. His release from prison was highly contested. Mm-hmm. Before his release, before his scheduled release, he underwent several psychological evaluations to deem his appropriateness for release. I read every single fucking one of these. I read so much court transcript, but this episode was getting so long, <laughs> I could do a whole other fucking episode on just his psyche evals. At the hearings, these three different psychologists would all say slightly different things. Regarding his diagnosis, his prognosis, his risk for reoffense, and the the issue that they're getting at at his release is we've talked about this in a couple of different cases. Um, if he met criteria for a sexually dangerous person or a sexually psychopathic personality, if you meet criteria for one of those two, that you can be categorized as unfit for release into the general population and forced into ongoing treatment, indefinite detainment. At this time, this was when Mary would testify. Quote, he said, Don't think that even if I get caught and put in prison for 25 years, don't think I will ever forget you. When I get out, I will go after you. And if you're dead, I will go after your kids.
0: Wow. This will never end for her.
1: I mean, this will never end. No especially if he had been deemed eligible for release. But what I will say is that luckily two of the three psychologists or the evaluating doctors, because there's always the one that you manage to find that's going to fucking say what you want them to mm. say. Um, two of the three agreed that the severity of the crimes he was convicted of, the degree of violence, the sexual nature of the crime – His medical and his personal history made him a danger to society at large and that he should be ineligible for release. So those are the big things that that they're looking for in court, the severity, the nature, medical and personal history. Ming Sen had refused sex offender treatment. He felt that he didn't need it, although obviously at court he would say, oh, I was never offered that, Mm. blah, blah, blah. He was deemed by the psychologist as varying personality disorders, antisocial, compulsive sexual traits, um, narcissistic, that sort of thing. A lot of various personality disorders, and they would disagree on the nuanced kind of tiny things, but they all agreed on the major things that his predatory sexual impulses and his lack of power to control them deemed him uneligible to be in the general community. And labeled him as a sexually dangerous person and a sexually psychopathic personality. It's a lot. Yes, it is. (laughs) One thing, I just have to include this because if you want to get a glimpse of, you know, what did he think about after this? What was he like after serving 30 years? Um. The psychologist would look at, okay, what's his overall history, his offenses. We've already talked about his offenses toward his mother, his offenses toward his Mm. brothers, his obsession with rape fantasy, his personality, his... What they also looked at was his current relationships, which is always, you know, a little bit tricky when you're talking about prisoners. But in interviews, he would share with the psychologist that he thought that the female officers in the prison really liked him Mm. and that they would seek out his company That, you know, they they probably really liked him. They probably really had crushes on him. Wow. And so, again, a good psychologist saying, "Mm, his level of insight here into human relationships is very low. Yeah. Yeah, it's a dangerously low level of insight. So it was deemed that she would serve out the rest of his time in a long-term treatment facility in Marion, Illinois. And that is where he is to this day. Marion, Illinois is on the deep, deep south side mm, of Illinois. Good. Far, far away um, from
0: Mary Stauffer.
1: <laughs> yes. So he is there forever and stuck, and he is ineligible for release. Um, he is reportedly in very poor health. Good. Yeah. I want to give a little update on how Mary and Beth are doing yes, now. Yes, please do. Um, Mary and Beth, once they regained their freedom on that day in 1980, they would return to their much-missed life. Irv and the rest of Mary's family shared that Mary seemed unchanged despite those seven weeks of trauma. The family, after a period of rest and a period of reconnection, would actually return to pursue their work in the Philippines, a literal world away from everything that they had gone through in their hometown of Roseville, Minnesota. Um, during a court hearing in which she reportedly apologized for ruining Mary's life, Mary responded in a follow-up interview saying, quote, he didn't ruin our lives, he ruined his own. Mary has refused to let Ming Sen have any power over her, any power over her sense of self, and any power over her mental health. She's a badass. Yes, she really is. <laughs> she, uh, yeah there was a lifetime movie made about this incident oh wow um and she was interviewed just kind of about how do you feel about this story being told how do you feel about you know people talking about what happened to you and she said quote i think many people have gone through really bad things many women have been raped they need to see that there's life after this she hopes that others seeing and hearing about their st- about her story can provide her hope and bravery to face those things, to recover from those things. Beth, I think she was a child when she went through this. And I think that she has had a little bit more tr- trouble coping and kind of managing the trauma that she went through. She seems to be thriving. Mm. She is married. She has children of her own. Um, She has a new name, which I will not give because she deserves that privacy. She has said that it has been very, very hard raising a child after what she went through. Mm -hmm. That she, you know, you have a Velcro kid. Beth has a Velcro. Beth is a Velcro mom. Mm
0: You
1: know, and I don't blame her for one single bit of that. She said it's hard to take them into the park. It's hard to let them out of my sight.
0: I mean, I think when you have any kind of childhood trauma parenting has an edge to it that is really difficult and I couldn't imagine the extent of how difficult it would be to have gone through what she went through and then to to have like raised children like it's a that is a testament to her strength I think like Mm -hmm. you know I think a lot of people would just kind of like disavow that life altogether you know
1: and say I'm never having kids I could never go through Mm -hmm. this I could never face this. Uh, legit that's probably how i would respond yeah
0: i mean having kids is really like watching your heart walk outside of your own body you know (laughs) and so yeah i think the i that to me that's like that just says a lot about her fortitude
1: Yeah. and even though she's not the one that gives
0: the interviews she's not the one that you know does all these things like media wise that our mom does like i think she needs a lot of respect for that
1: yeah, I mean, she will. She'll participate in interviews and she will do these things. I, you know, trauma when you're in your 30s is different than trauma when you're eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think, again, the personality differences and the way you go about your life differences. I think that, you know, Mary shut herself off. From what I gather, from my impression, she shut off every single emotion that she could mm-hmm. during that experience to just go into
0: straight protection mode yeah um yeah yeah and it sounds like she was able to I mean I'm sure you know there's some I would imagine there's stuff that she has gone through you know after all of this that you wouldn't God, say yeah. in an interview you wouldn't say uh-huh. publicly you know but
1: her family always talks about her as being so brave and that she recovered and that there was you know you would never know a difference I'm sure in Mary's brain she knows the difference there's she, she knows the difference. Mm-hmm. She knows what she went through and she knows where she struggles. And, you know, I hope that she gets all the love and support and therapy and everything that she
0: could ever dream of. Yeah, amen. Jeez, that That's... was not what I expected today at all. <laughs> I am very uh, shook.
1: Yeah. I knew as soon as I read about her being a teacher – and what Ming
0: tells her, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's. You know, you do have, like, you know, the other thing that does happen sometimes is, like, you have kids that creep you out. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can't do anything about a kid that creeps you out. It's just like, yep. this kid's creepy. I feel like one day he'll probably do something bad. But, yeah. and, like, you know, you can do whatever you can to, like, avoid situations with that kid to whatever extent possible. But. You know, we don't have a lot of control over that stuff, right? So it's interesting to me that this kid like never stood out to her at all. Like
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think that is always again, like I'm on I I'm on a different side of this where I see the kids in therapy and I see the ones that I worry about the most are the ones that make themselves fly under the radar. Mm-hmm. Until there's some kind of triggering event or something that happens, and yeah,
0: but yeah, I was also just thinking like like Mary didn't teach for that long, and she was very very young yeah. when she was his teacher because he was only uh, six years younger than her or seven years younger than her. So
1: yeah, she was like twenty three mm-hmm. when she was teaching him. Yeah,
0: and so I think also like with with experience and time and exposure to a lot of different types of kids, mm-hmm. I see things now that I would not have seen in my first couple of years, right? Like, you notice things, the instincts change, the, you know. So it could be that, like, if she was a 34-year-old teacher like me, that she might see signs from him that 22-year-old her would not have seen, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because your perception just changes with experience over time. And I think the younger that you are in those first couple of years, like, we all have a much, like, rosier naive outlook on a lot of things than you end Mm -hmm. up with after many years in education you know yep and the things you see Uh. and the different types of kids that you see go through different types of things and you learn very quickly that like red flags and little things that make your hair stand up in the back of your neck do not come in the packages that you expect them to when you're 24
1: I think about this a lot, that the red flags we're trained to look for never look like red flags. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, everything is always disguised. Everything is always hidden. And kids get savvier and savvier about,
0: you know, what they say and how they present Mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah, and kids know. (sighs) And they'll say even to you, like, I'm not going to say what's going on because I know you'll have to report it.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. Anyway, so that is the story of Mary
0: and Beth and the very unfortunate loss of Jason Wilkman. Indeed. Well, we'll be thinking about Jason Wilkman's family and his memory, and I'm sure that in all of this, like, um, probably at the time, the media firestorm, he probably got lost in a lot of that shuffle, you know? He, he really, really did. It's really kind of tragic. He's not lost in our shuffle. no. We hear you. Yeah, we do. Yeah.
1: So why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to be doing next
0: week. Yeah, so next week we're going to be looking at a uh, missing persons case. So we don't know at this point or not if this is a true crime story in the sense that we don't know if a crime has occurred. However, Ooh. I want to take a look at uh, the disappearance of Diamond Bynum and Kink Walker out of Gary, Indiana just a few short years ago. Um, i love gary indiana cases do you i do so diamond bynum uh was at the time of her disappearance um in her early 20s and and she was watching her nephew king who was two years old and um they disappeared one day um never to be found again the complicating factor to the case is that diamond um is or was severely mentally handicapped. So, um, the circumstances of the disappearance and the search that followed, given that it was in Gary, Indiana, which is a very, very difficult place, and we'll delve into that in much depth next time. Um, why I think specifically disappearing in Gary, Indiana, is, uh-huh. um, is another type of disappearance. Right.
1: It's a whole nother world. Mm It's. It's Gary, Indiana.
0: Yes, it is. Um, So, yeah, I want to dig into that case. I want to dig into what happened and and what some theories might be, how investigation went down, how it's still going down. Uh, So please do come back for that. It's kind of a gut punch. um, But my hope is that, you know, every little bit of attention that can be given to a case like that helps to jog somebody's recollection or somebody's knowledge or you know some interest especially those of us living in northwestern indiana um you know that we can kind of keep some degree of attention
1: or chicagoland yeah gary and dan is still chicagoland Mm -hmm.
0: yeah if we can keep some kind of spotlight on a case that could very easily fall through the cracks
1: all right looking forward to
0: that yes please do come back for that friends i hope To not sound like a dying Muppet by that time, because I've had this cold for approximately 47 years. (laughs) And I would like for it to go away now. (laughs) I'm sorry. Thank you. I I mean, if I still sound like this next time we sit down, I'm not going to be able to talk through it. So we're going to have to. I hope you get the mother mucus. Me too. The mother snot is very important. It's very important. Uh,
1: You know, what's funny is I found my next
0: case while I was looking into uh, Darren Vaughn. Oh, yeah? Out of Gary, yeah. Mm. Because I was looking into the murder maps shit. Ah, I'm glad you're doing Darren Vaughn because I was thinking about putting that on my list. But I'll take it off Uh, now. He's he's been on my list for forever. Have him. He's terrible. He's all yours.
1: He's... It's so much though. It is. It's it's gonna be a two parter, and so it's like, when do I have the time and energy to dedicate to him? Mm-hmm. And also, I'm trying to not to spend all of my time in Indiana. Me but too.
0: Y'all are fucked. <laughs> up. Y'all are fucked. I know it's so bad here. It's so bad. <laughs> in our it's snow-covered It's Ohio and in Indiana. Land. I can't. I, know. I can't get
1: out of there.
0: It's terrible. <sighs> it's terrible. All right, friends. So please come back. Uh, in the meantime, hang out with us on the socials. Please talk to us. We love to hear from people. Uh, keep rating. Keep sharing. Keep telling your friends. We would Woo. love more Wretched buddies out there.
1: We love them. We love chatting.
0: We do. Not right now because I sound like this, but in general, yes. So I mean – yeah. Yeah, No, I need to go to bed um, and sleep this off on the air mattress in my Velcro preschooler's room because she needs me oh, to sleep fuck. in her room or she will refuse to go to bed. So that's my fate tonight.
1: That sounds literally awful. I am so sorry. What if you just didn't, like?
0: Oh, then I have to deal with being the one that broke a promise. Uh <sighs> Anyway, people, please think of me and send kind thoughts as I will be uh, slowly deflating an air mattress over the next eight hours. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Indeed. (laughs) Cheers to this holiday season. Uh, Please remember to be nice
1: and eat (laughs) cheese. And
0: we love you. We love you. Bye, friends. Bye. will go away when you finally get rid of the mother snot like the deep like that deep booger that's just like in there it's like the mother in vinegar it is no that's exactly what it is so once you get the mother snot you're done right i don't think that's how it works no i i am convinced that that's how it works you cannot (laughs) convince me otherwise it's never failed me i get the mother snot and i'm better than X.